Morning. Uh, customarily, that's where you say uh, good morning uh, in our culture. So, uh, good morning. Oh, good. You're here. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm morning to you. Uh, some of you know this about me. Uh, some of you don't. But uh, I became a Christian when I was uh, 18 years old. It all started uh, one winter night, my senior year of high school. I was over at a friend's house on a weekend, and I was supposed to stay overnight there, and there was a bunch of us hanging out. And <clears throat> it was about 2 in the morning. We're kind of getting ready to actually fall asleep, you know, stop talking and that sort of thing. And I thought, oh, I don't really want to sleep on their couch. You know, the couch is not going to be that comfortable. I'll, you know, I'm just going to go home, sleep in my own bed. So 2 in the morning, I leave their house, go back to my my own house, go down to the basement to my room, and God did a miracle in my life that night. At that point in my life, I was uh, really opposed to people who were following Jesus. I was not interested at all. It was two in the morning. Rather than just crashing on my bed, I looked over at my bookshelf, and there on the bookshelf was a Bible that somebody had given to me when I was in third grade. And I just had this overwhelming urge that I should open it up and see what it said. And even though I was opposed to people following Jesus and Christians and all that, I knew enough that the words of Jesus, the stories about Jesus were in the part of the Bible called the New Testament. And so I thought, you know, I'll just start in that New Testament part. And I opened it up and I just started to read. I didn't even know if I was in like a, a funk or in a hard place, but just God just wooed me to open up the Bible and I started to read. And every night after that, I would go into my room, I would shut the door and I started to read the Bible. And the Bible absolutely blew my mind. Now, I, I kind of had this misconception that the whole Bible was just religious services and ceremonies and animal sacrifices and irrelevant teachings and all this sort of thing. But it wasn't that at all. Uh, it was the narrative. The stories were so engaging. Uh, Jesus' teaching, I, I just found to be absolutely brilliant. I'd never read anything like it. And so I just kept reading and reading every night. And after about six months of reading and a few other nudges from God, I decided to become a Christian. That is a, a follower of Jesus to believe that he died in my place and to give my life to him. And over the next year of my life, I just devoured God's word. I can remember about a year into my faith, uh, some of my, it was more like six months, really. Some of my friends helped me buy a study Bible for the first time where I could really start to study God's word. I can just remember being up late at night on my bed, looking through it and looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament and going, wait, 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 that connects to that? And that could, no way. And just being blown away by the Bible because the Bible is deeply interconnected. And at its core, it's always pointing to the Messiah, Jesus. And in fact, we're going to study a passage in the Bible this morning that proves that. Uh, at our church, ever since 2018, actually, we've been studying the book of Luke together in the Bible. Uh, Luke is one of four books uh, in Scripture that's really about the life and teachings, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as a church, often what we'll do is we'll teach through the book of Luke for six or seven weeks in a row, and then we'll take a break for a few months, you know, do some sort of topical thing, go back to Luke, take a break, go back. And we've been kind of been doing on and off since 2018. In fact, now we are 63 messages into the book of Luke. That is, uh, that is incredible. And it's because we're literally going verse by verse through the book. We're not skipping the hard parts or the intimidating parts, or the challenging parts. We're just systematically going through God's word so you can learn what it really says and who God really is. Uh, before we jump into our passage, 
I want to say one more thing briefly to those of you that are just kind of checking this place out, or maybe you're just kind of getting back into your faith or exploring faith. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to have a Bible. In fact, the Bible under your chairs uh, is, or under the chair in the row in front of you, is our gift to you. And so if you don't have one, would you please just take that? on your way out today. Uh, that would just be a, a blessing to me and to you. And I just know that God will open up your eyes to the brilliance of his word. Okay, so uh, why don't you grab a Bible? I want everybody to look. When we study scripture, we want you to look at it. So uh, grab a Bible. Go ahead. Uh, you can do some exercise. Grab the one in front of you. Uh, we are going to be on page 716 today. Uh, if you don't want to grab one, you can use your phone. Uh, you just go to the Renovation Church app, tap Bible or Weekly Verses, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke. Uh, even though we're in uh, Luke chapter 18, and Luke is only 24 chapters long, there's still you know six, seven chapters to go, we're actually towards the end of Jesus's life. In fact, once we get to chapter 19, we'll be in the last week of Jesus's life. So kind of chronologically in the life of Christ, we're getting near the end at this point. Uh, Today we're going to cover just four verses. We're going to read through it and then I'll start explaining it. Okay, so Luke 18, that's the big number you look for on page 716. And then look for the little number 31. That just means the verse of 31. That's where we're going to start. Okay, here's what it says. It says, Jesus took the 12, that's his 12 disciples, aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man, that's a title for Jesus, so you could read it, everything, or for the Messiah, everything that's been written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. When you read Gentiles, that just means like non-Jews. In this case, it's going to be the Romans. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Okay, so Jesus tells them, all right, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. Now, verse 34 tells us that the disciples didn't really understand the meaning of it and what he was talking about. To them, they're not going to Jerusalem for Jesus to die. They're going to Jerusalem because everybody else right now is going to Jerusalem And everybody else is going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. In fact, in those days, Jews were required to go to Jerusalem three different times throughout the year to celebrate certain holidays, and one of them was Passover. So everybody is going up to Jerusalem at this time. Now, the Passover is a religious holiday. And if you live in America and you have a calendar or a phone with a calendar, you probably at least are familiar with the word Passover, right? You've seen it on your calendar. Usually it's right around the time of Easter. But I think a lot of people maybe are less familiar with what actually is Passover. If I said, can you describe Passover for me in 300 words or less? I think a lot of us would go, no. <laughs> right? Okay, so what is Passover? If you, maybe you, I don't know, maybe you're actually a Passover scholar and welcome to our services. I'll step down. But I'm guessing maybe you don't know all that much about it. Well, Passover is a, a miracle that God did, and you can read about it in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. So the people of God, the Israelites, were held in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And God decides it's time to free them. And so he strikes Pharaoh and the Egyptians with 10 different plagues. Uh, The Nile River is turned to blood. There's a plague of frogs, a plague of locusts and flies. And then the final plague, the 10th one, is called the plague and the death of the firstborn sons. 
And you can read all this in that book of Exodus. In fact, I know there's some of you in this room that you podcast all the time. If you're new around here, one thing you can do is we taught verse by verse through that entire book of Exodus a number of years ago. It's called Rescue, the name of the series. So if you want to podcast that, listen to that on our website or our app. You can go through all 20 messages through that book. So again, the last plague is the death of the firstborn. And what happens in the book of Exodus is the angel of death comes through the city, and only those who had basically painted blood of a lamb on their doorframe would be saved. That's how it works. Now, time out for a second. I was going to do pause, but I went with time out. I'm doing hand signals. When I... I remember coming to Christ and hearing about some of this stuff. That just sounds, it sounds so strange to our modern suburban ears, right? But remember, this is taking place in an ancient society. It's an agrarian society. It's, it's a society that has animal sacrifice. So again, the slaughtering of a lamb, the blood, it's not as weird to them as it sounds to us. Now, if you read the story, what happens is the angel of death that is coming to take, to kill, basically, the firstborn sons passed over, pass over, get it, passed, passed over any house that had the blood of the lamb on top of the doorframe. They were passed over. They were saved. They lived. Okay, now. That might seem pretty random, and maybe you're going, David, why in the world are you even talking about this right now? But let's go forward about 1,500 years in time, and now Jesus is on his way, we're told, to Jerusalem, and he's going for Passover. By the way, speaking of Jesus, do you know what a lot of people called Jesus? I'll show you this in Scripture. John the Baptist, the prophet who helped begin Jesus' ministry, called him this. John chapter 1, verse 29. Says so the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the, what's it say? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sometimes we sing that song, though, He's the Lion and the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb. Now, get this the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, is going to be shed when? He's this lamb. He's going to die, right? His blood is going to be shed when? Do you know when Jesus died in history? During the Passover. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the Bible is just incredible. In fact, it gets even more amazing. So when the Jews celebrated the Passover each year, they would sacrifice. They would eat lamb. And they were supposed to find a male lamb without blemish, whose bones had not been broken. That was one of the requirements for Passover from the Old Testament. And Jesus perfectly fulfills the prophecy of the Passover lamb. He is without sin, without blemish, and he's male. And of course, well, not of course, but amazingly, we're told, the Bible makes sure to point this out, that when he's crucified, that not a bone is broken on his body. And if you believe in Jesus through faith, uh, sometimes Christians will use this a curious face and faith, uh, phrase, and uh, the New Testament sort of alludes to this. They'll say, if you believe in Jesus, you are covered by his blood. Now, again, if you're talking to someone who's just checking out Jesus, like, yeah, that just sounds weird, right? I remember coming to Christ and hearing stuff like that, like, what, what are you talking about? All that is, is it's a reference to Passover. And it's saying that if 
remember, because in Passover, if they had the blood of the lamb on their doorframe, the angel of death would pass over them. They weren't going to die. They were saved. They were covered by the blood. It was the same thing with Christians. By believing that Jesus' blood was shed for you, by believing he died for you, are saved because of the blood of the lamb, and you have eternal life. I mean, isn't the interconnectedness of the Bible just incredible? It's amazing. And we're just getting started in the passage. That's just the first verse. It, it gets more amazing. So one of the things that you saw in the first verse is Jesus says everything that's written about him by the prophets, that's in the Old Testament, will be fulfilled. It's going to happen. Everything. And then he talks about how he will be mocked and insulted and flogged and killed. And let me show you an amazing prophecy of that. So I actually want you to see this. So if you've got your Bible still, or if you haven't picked one up, you can grab it or you can see it in your phone. If you have your Bible, will you just turn back to page 505? I actually want you to look at this. Um, you're going to be in the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> so this is about 800 years before Jesus. And it's a prophecy about what will happen to the Messiah when he comes someday. And here's what it says. So it's Isaiah chapter 53. We'll start at uh, verse 3. It says, He, the Messiah, was despised and rejected by mankind. This is some of this like mocking and insulting that happened to Jesus. Even though he was a king of kings. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. Right? They spit on him, it said. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Right? I want you to think of the cross as you read this. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And Jesus, this is crazy, was Pierced. They, they, at the very end of his, after he died, they threw a spear at him to make sure he was dead. Pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Just means sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So, you know, we say this a lot here that Jesus took our punishment and, and was put upon him. Here it is prophesied 800 years ahead of time. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. I encourage you to read the rest of this chapter tonight. I mean, just This is amazing. It was just an amazing, amazing book. All of that happened, even though it was predicted 800 years before Jesus walked on this earth. I just got to tell you, the Bible is not a book of fairy tales, despite what people may have told you. It's an interwoven masterpiece of God's truth. And so when this masterpiece of history, God's word, tells you something really important, like Jesus loves you, that God loves you. You want to listen really carefully. Now look at uh, verses 32 and 33 again in our passage. So if you, you flip back to the, the book of Luke, so let me find that again. We're on uh, page uh, 716. Let's just look at this carefully. It says, he, Jesus, will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. 
They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. That's what happened to Jesus. He was betrayed by his disciple Judas. Betrayed. He was handed over. The Jewish leaders handed him over to the Roman authorities because they were the only ones that could enact capital punishment. But it's not just that they executed Jesus. We see they they mocked him. And they spit on Jesus. They flogged him. That means we know from history, because the Romans did this all the time, that they most likely tied him to a tree or to a post, and they whipped his shoulders, his back, his legs, with a whip called the flagellum, which consisted of small pieces of bone and metal that were tied intermittently on leather strands. And of course, eventually, they, they murdered him. And Jesus endured all of that for you. If there's anyone listening to this right now who's just been doubting God's love for you lately, I mean, maybe you just had a rough week. I don't know what your week was like. Maybe in this last week or this last month, you just really, maybe you really messed up. Or maybe you feel like this last month has just been dark for you. If that's you, I just want your eyes to look hard at God's word this morning. Jesus tells us that he is going to Jerusalem. And he knows he's going to be the Passover lamb. That his blood is going to be shed. But here is the one thing I do not want you to miss from this passage today. It's not just that Jesus is uh, eventually going to be arrested, and they're going to hit him and flog him, and it's all kind of out of his control. No, no, no. This isn't telling us about what just happened to Jesus. This is Jesus telling us that he already knows that it's going to happen to him. Okay, so then let me ask you. If you knew that if you kept walking up to Jerusalem, that when you got there, you were going to be mocked and spit on and flogged and murdered, would you go to Jerusalem? No way. So why, if Jesus knew this, why did he keep going to Jerusalem? He goes because he was determined to love you, to die for you. In fact, he always planned to be your Passover lamb, dying in your place. Even during the original Passover in the book of Exodus, Jesus in heaven knew that that Passover was just a shadow of a greater Passover to come. Right? It was determined long ago that Jesus would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that we read, who would be pierced for our sins. He knew it was going to happen before time began. Jesus knew that he would suffer for you. And yet when the time came, they had the choice, am I going to walk up to Jerusalem or not? He went for you. I think, when I look at this passage, the fact that Jesus willingly subjected himself to such pain, to such agony, on our behalf, is even more amazing if you really think about who Jesus is. Because Jesus isn't just some nice 
teacher who taught us ethics and instructed us to love our neighbor. Jesus, yes, is a human being, but he's also, the Bible tells us, God in the flesh. And in this passage, he uses a title for himself that's important if you're going to understand this passage well. And he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is kind of weird to our ears, but in those days, 2,000 years ago, especially in Jewish culture, the Son of Man was a title they threw out a lot. It's used like 90 times in the New Testament. It's a title that they would throw out that's somewhat synonymous with our term Messiah. But it's a particular aspect of the Messiah that they're referring to. And you can see this actually in a prophecy about the Son of Man from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Jesus. I'll read it to you so you can kind of get an aspect of what they're alluding to when they say Son of Man. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. So when they're saying Son of Man, they're referring to what he's going to talk about now. Coming with the clouds of heaven... He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus, very purposely here in this passage, refers to himself, interestingly, as the son of man. And he wants you to know, I'm not just a teacher. I'm not even just the Passover lamb. I am also the son of man. So know that when human history on earth wraps up, that it will be me, Jesus is saying, coming on the clouds to judge the nations and reign as king of kings. That's also who I am. And then he talks about how he's going to be spit on and flogged and mocked. So let's put these two things together. Let me ask you all a question. A couple of questions. In the hours leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, when the Roman soldiers put the purple robe on him and the crown of thorns and they mocked him, as king. He said, oh, hail, king of the Jews. Could Jesus, the son of man, could he not just said the word stop and they would have fallen over dead? Could he not have done that? And when they, they whipped him, and he whipped his back and his shoulders and his legs and he cried out in pain. Could he not have just called 10,000 angels to just immediately wipe them out? And when they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, could he not just have called down fire from heaven to eliminate the Roman soldiers? Yes. Yes and yes, he could have, but he didn't. And he didn't because he was determined to love you. He was determined to die in your place. That is the love of God for you. That's how deep it is. That's how rich it is. And he knew it was coming. That's the crazy part, I think, of this passage. He knew that was all coming. And he still went. I know a lot of you sitting in here, you know that. You know this. If I ask you, does 
does Jesus love you? You can answer yes. But I think one of the questions we, we ask ourselves as Christians, especially as we hear the good news, is how deeply do I know that? Do I know, 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 know it, or is it just some sort of theological fact that I relegated to the back dusty corner of my brain somewhere? To me, actually, one of the most interesting parts of today's little passage is verse 34, the last verse. Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm, uh, I'm going to die, I'm, I'm going to rise again. And then verse 34, very surprisingly, says this. says, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Well, we read it and we're like, how do you not know what he's talking about? <laughs> like, it feels like pretty plain speech to me. I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. And like in hindsight, it all seems pretty clear, but to them... Right? They, maybe they think he's speaking in like a parable or he's just really metaphorical, like, well, die to yourself and rise with a new attitude tomorrow, or they just don't get it. And as I was studying this passage this week, it just hit me that there are so many people in America right now who, to them, the meaning of Jesus' death is also hidden as this passage says. Like, uh, of course, we, we say this sometimes. If you went around and you just took a survey uh, on the street uh, and you said, hey, how did Jesus die? I, uh, yeah, I think 90% of Americans can say, oh, he, he died on a cross. But if you ask the quintessential question, the essential, most important question of, okay, but why did he die? And what for? And what, what did his death actually accomplish? I'm not sure that even half of Americans could answer that question according to what the Bible teaches. And maybe for you this morning, his death is just starting to take shape in a whole new way. Because the truth is, without the blood of Jesus over us, we too will suffer the plague of death, just like they did from the angel of death in the Old Testament. We will die without Jesus. And not just an earthly death, but a death of eternal suffering in hell, without heaven. We can't be saved without that blood of the new Passover lamb, Jesus. And I, I, I hope that you are hearing so clearly that Jesus loves you so much, he came to save you. He came to save you. He suffered for you immensely when he didn't have to. Because he loves you. He died to take the punishment for your sins. And I, I just wonder, and this is a question for some of you in this room. Have you ever truly accepted that? I mean, who is Jesus to you? To you personally? Is just some guy you learned about in church? Some historical figure? Is he just some teacher? Or is he your savior? I mean, you think back to the original Passover, right? Each person had to decide Am I going to paint this on my doorway? Or I just think like, nah, it's not going to happen. Right? That was kind of a hard decision. You, you, I mean, you could understand that people would go like, really? 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 It, it, it's, a, it's a movement of faith to say, yeah, I'm going to, yes. And that is a question in front of every single one of us. Are you going to paint Jesus over your life saying, I believe that by believing you died in my place and saying, I want to follow you, that that is the only way I'm going to be saved. And otherwise, I'm not going to be saved. That's a decision in front of every one of us. 
And if you've never said, yes, I believe you are my savior. I believe you died for me. I, I'm turning my life over to you today. I, I, I want to be forgiven. I, I actually want to give you that opportunity right now. So let's just do this. Uh, let's just have everybody in the room. Would you just close your eyes just for a minute? Maybe just bow your head. If I've just, you feel like you, I've been talking to you the last couple of minutes. In the love of Jesus, is just hitting home for you today. You just are experiencing in your heart how much he loves you. And you know that you just need to believe that he died for you. You got to turn the keys of your life over to him. Today is the day to do this. Don't put it off. If that's you and you've never done this before, I'm going to ask you in just a second here, just to stand up where you're at. Right? That's just a way for you to mark today, February 14th. As a day that you accepted the love of Jesus into your life and you let him die for you, that you believed in faith. And so if you're ready to say, I believe, it's my time, I actually believe and I'm going to follow and accept his gift of forgiveness to let him save you. What I want you to do is just real quietly, if you've never done this before, just quietly, would you just stand up where you're at right now to be forgiven, accept that gift. Go ahead and just stand up. Every one of us has to make that choice. Do I believe? Do I believe that he died for me? And if you've never done that before and you know today is the day you need to be saved, would you just say, yes, God, I believe, and just stand up if that's you? Let me give you about five or ten more seconds. Anyone today need to give their life to him? All right. If, if you are here and you're kind of wrestling with this, going, I don't know. I don't know. I, I want to, but I'm not sure. What I would say to you is take that Bible when you leave under your chair today. Start reading in the book of Matthew in the New Testament and start investigating. For me, it, you know, it, it wasn't a six-minute decision. It was a six-month decision. And that is okay. Keep coming. Keep investigating. And we just believe you're going to see a God who just loves you so much. All right, let me, let me pray and then we'll, we'll respond with the song of worship. Lord, thank you so much that you, that you went to Jerusalem. That you are our Passover lamb. That you somehow could see all the filth, the wickedness, the dirtiness of our life and still proceed to die a painful death in our place. I, I just, I can't even put words around just that depth of love. They're just so grateful for it, God. And may our, our, our gratitude just pour out as we sing and worship you now. We just love you so much. Your name we pray. Amen.